How does a physician almost become an astronaut? What is the Vomit Comment? What is up with the Bench to Bedside program here at the University of Utah School of Medicine? Learn those answers today and more on Talking Missions and Med Student Life with Dr. Chan and Dr. Langel. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. All right, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. This is Dr. Chan. I have a great guest today. I have Dr. Uh, Dr. Langel. Langel uh, Dr. Langel, I'll go ahead and introduce yourself because uh, you have many titles. I was just saying I don't want to say anything that is wrong. So go ahead, Dr. Langel. Thank you. Now, my name is John Langel. I'm a surgeon at the University of Utah. And I carry many other titles, really, that have to do with the, the passion I have in different areas of medicine. So I'm also the executive director of the Center for Medical Innovation, and I'm the chief of general surgery at the George E. Wallen VA Medical Center. Fantastic. Um, and so let's break that down, Dr. Langel. Like, um, you know, this podcast is for people who are, you know, trying to make up, decide what kind of career they want for themselves. And, you know, it sounds like your first path was becoming a surgeon or choosing to become a surgeon. How did you arrive at that choice? Well, a lot of people have a difficult time making a decision as to what career to go into. I was fortunate in a sense that I I was one of these kids who was active, and I decided as a young child that Evil Knievel, for those of you who remember him, was a really cool guy. He used to jump things with motorcycles. And I thought that was a great idea to do on your bicycle at about the age of six, at which point I fractured my um, humerus. And I, Sounds and, painful. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't really remember yeah, the yeah, pain so much. Yeah. What I do remember is being wheeled into the operating room to get a fixation completed. And on the way, I looked up and I saw a sign that I could make out most of the words on. And the nurse told me that was a cardiovascular surgeon. And she told me what they did. And at that point in life, I said, that's what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Now, I've modified that a bit. As I was in training, my uh, faculty mentors told me, we all came in with that same concept. It sounds really fun and really cool, but be open-minded and see if there's something you really like along the way. So as I progressed through my training, I did my surgical residency at Stanford. I started to realize that the field of cardiothoracic surgery was changing markedly from when I was younger and when I was a med student. And it's because Coming a field of interventional cardiology with the cardiothoracic surgeons playing a very important role in patients who are not candidates for their procedures. I realized I really loved general surgery, uh, minimally invasive surgery, and I loved the concept of innovation to, to transform medicine for the future. And I changed my mind at that point and decided that I wanted to go into minimally invasive surgery and then to innovate. Awesome. So you're at Stanford. It sounds like you have this eureka moment that you want to be more involved in medical innovation, be on the cutting edge of different technologies, different techniques. How did you wind up here at the University of Utah? So Stanford initially was going to um, try and keep me on, and I had met somebody who was going to become my wife. She was an Air Force flight surgeon, and I had done my two years away from residency, which is part of the Stanford program with NASA at Johnson Space Center. We were put into a training program together for about eight weeks, and at that point decided that we wanted to stay together. After her commitment to the Air Force as a flight surgeon, she wanted to become an anesthesiologist. And I actually had arranged for her to get a position outside the match at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, that sounds great, but I want to go to the University of Utah because I've heard their anesthesia program is incredible and that's where I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I didn't know much about the University of Utah at that point. 
So I reached out to some of my mentors who connected me with the chairman of surgery here. I came and looked at the program, I interviewed, fell in love with the place instantly, and that's how I got my start here. Fantastic. Well, before we talk more about the University of Utah, I'm curious to know about NASA. So you worked at NASA or did training at NASA? I did. That was kind of a side jot in my life that I still keep active with. So when I was a kid, the other thing I wanted to do in life was be an astronaut. And when I was at Stanford, they have a mandatory two years away from their program to develop yourself, to do something else and be a little bit different. And I had already completed a Ph.D., and most of my colleagues in surgical residency went off into laboratories because they needed to learn what research was about. So I actually applied to do a separate uh, training in medicine, uh, in space medicine and aerospace medicine, dealing with microgravity, high G acceleration, uh, and space flight. Wow. So I spent two years with them out at Johnson Space Center. And at that time, as part of the program, you get a master's in public health from uh, UTMB, and you complete a residency in space and aerospace medicine. While I was working with them, I became heavily involved in the science of space radiation biology and then device development for the concept of doing doing surgery in space flight, which is something far more complex than I had ever thought it would be because you have to think about fluids in space. So when somebody loses blood in space, it doesn't pool down like it does on Earth's gravity, it actually forms into balls of fluid that float around. So you could have a a pig, for instance, if you were doing pig work, exsanguinate in the abdomen, and it wouldn't actually be necessarily in your operative field. It could be behind you, and you wouldn't know what's going on. Wow. So it was a great time for me at NASA. I really enjoyed what I did. I did some consulting for them since and have continued to. And I've also started developing devices that can be used in space for surgery since I've been here at the university. Now, a side piece for me was I almost did leave medicine. When I was at NASA, they uh, saw some potential, and I was accepted to be a finalist for astronaut there. They put me through the typical one-week-long physical examination and interview process. For any of you who've seen the movie The Right Stuff, it's changed a little bit. They've added more tests now. Mm -hmm. My year was the very first year they decided to do an echocardiogram. Mm -hmm. And so I was the first candidate they ever detected with a patent for amen ovale, something they knew that one out of three people had, Mm -hmm. but they didn't know what to do. So they put me through multiple tests. And when it came down to it, my friends who were actually running the training program had to make a decision as to whether I should be allowed to go into space or not. And it ended up about six to seven vote against because they weren't quite sure whether it would lead to increased uh, decompression sickness uh, strokes because of bubble formation going from right to left. So it turned out to be a good move, I think, overall, because now we've seen the space program deteriorate. And the friends who actually got into the program are really not getting flights. So I think overall it was the right thing for me, and I've continued wow. my career. Sounds like you're this close to becoming an astronaut. That's fascinating. So, wow. Um, yeah, I remember the movie The Right Stuff, and they have the, like, I, I don't know the technical words, but they have that spinning, you know, like like how many Gs your body can Centrifuge. Under- Centrifuge, all right. Um, so you did that. and It is really, really unpleasant, yes. <laughs> And did you go up and do the, those weightlessness drops? With I the, did. Okay. Wow. We call it the Vomit Comet. The Vomit Comet. Tell yes. me more about that. So NASA holds experimentation on aircraft that do parabolic flight. 
And it gives you, depending on which gravity you simulate, between zero gravity, or you can do zero gravity, Mars gravity, moon gravity, however you want to do it based on the parabolas. We did zero gravity parabolas most of the time. And you can conduct research and get minimal periods of microgravity to understand research concepts as they would apply into spaceflight. Now, as a uh, resident in space medicine, we would go on board as medical monitors. And it was an opportunity to help take care of people who are having really big issues with space sickness. Because if you go in the, quote, vomit comet, about 90% of people get motion sickness. So we actually pre-medicate with scopolamine and dexedrine for every person going up, and we drop it down to about 10%. Because if somebody, like in space, if somebody happens to uh, vomit when we're on a zero-gravity parabola, it floats. Mm -hmm. And then it drops when you go to higher gravity. And so we we try and be there for them, help them out, give them what they need to take care of them while we're in the air. But at the same time, it's an incredible experience for for those of you who re- remember the movie The Matrix, where you are in a computer animation world that you can float and flip and spin, you can do all of those things in this aircraft just like you can in space. And when you, when we did simulations of doing CPR on a patient that may actually have had a, a, an NMI or need resuscitation in space – You now have to figure out how do you get enough force to do chest compressions. So to do that, we strap you to a board or you go in an inverted standing position and put your feet against the ceiling so that you can get enough force to do compressions. Wow. Dr. Langell, that's fascinating. So was the vomit common or the centrifuge, was one of those the most physically demanding tasks during that week? or, Or what was the most trying for you during that week? Well, I think the most trying for me and giving me an appreciation for what patients go through is NASA has a clinic where they can conduct sigmoidoscopies, though it really approaches a full colonoscopy, but they don't have the privileges to do sedation. So you undergo a very extensive scoping of the colon without any sedation at all. And that is not a really pleasant procedure. And I quickly started to uh, empathize with our patients. So, so why did they do that? Is, is that just to see how tough you are? Or, or if you were in space and you needed a, a colonoscopy without anesthesia to see if you can tolerate it? Or No, it, NASA is very risk averse. They do not want to spend the money to train an astronaut who potentially has a medical condition. So They actually do some things that many would say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So they'll check your blood serum levels for antithyroid antibodies. Mm -hmm. And even though your chances of ever having thyroiditis from that are really, really low, if you have it, you're not going to become an astronaut. If they scope you and they find a polyp, you're out at least that year, and then you can go get it resected. If it turns out not Uh to be cancer, you might be able to get in. Now, this is really interesting because when I was there, John Young, who was uh, NASA's last astronaut to still be at Johnson Space Center, came and gave us a nice briefing and said, let's take a look at the statistics of spaceflight. And as he went through it, he said, each and every one of you, if you're accepted, has a 20% chance that you will die in space or on your way to space. So that means one out of five astronauts has the potential to die. And they're worried about that astronaut potentially getting thyroiditis and maybe a 2 or 1% chance across their lifetime. So they're really risk-averse, but they're trying to be careful about the financial resources that they expend. Okay. All right. Well, that's a, fa- like, that's a fascinating discussion. So well, it sounds like we have to do a whole other podcast to talk about, uh, like, you'll become an astronaut. It's fantastic. So let's jump ahead to University of Utah. Tell me about where 
you know, how you got involved in medical innovation here, where the program has come to, and, and where you see it going. So when I first came to the University of Utah, I came as a really heavily involved practicing surgeon, and I still am practicing, but I've tailored it down to take on a new role as the director of Center for Medical Innovation. The the initial period when I was trying to get folks involved in the development of device technologies and other types of technologies to improve the way we practice medicine, the, the group wasn't quite ready, though the bioengineers were ready. But we've seen a major culture change over the, the initial couple of years and, and really massively over the last four to five years so that we're able to build programs where we teach students and faculty about the entire concept of from bench to bedside. And that is, how do you come up with the ideas that can one day become solutions to real problems that we have in the clinical setting? And then once you come up with an idea because you've observed a problem, how do you really validate the need and understand what you're going to address that there's there's use for it in the market and that you're not making something that people aren't going to want to actually apply to patient care? And then it really gets complex. So is there intellectual property behind it? Is somebody already taking it? Am I encroaching on their patent? Or can I find a niche where I actually have a patentable space so that the university can go out and protect it and somebody will want to bring it to market? What is it like to go through the FDA regulatory process? What types of devices are there? What type of regulatory pathways can I possibly go through and tailor my device to meet that? Uh, What are design controls? What are manufacturing controls? These are things that inventors really need to know because it's not as simple as the old days, which really maybe weren't the good days, where uh, a physician inventor came up with an idea and they could instantly apply it in the clinics and see how it went. Well, that's, that's not always optimal for patient care. It's great for innovation, but it's, it's not good for patient care. So we teach them the entire process, and then the other things that they need to know, such as how do you raise capital in order to take the venture forward? How do you deal with licensing? What is a non-disclosure agreement, and why do I need one? And um, what's a business plan? And these are really important components that they at least have to be fluent in. Otherwise, they're going to have a very difficult time actually taking something they've created and getting it to be used in the actual clinical setting. And it sounds like like almost anyone can participate, correct? You know, attending physicians, resident physicians, even medical students, right? And undergraduate students. And undergrads, okay. Yes, yeah. any, anybody. And we're trying to make this an uh, even bigger ecosystem by reaching across campus and breaking down the traditional academic silos. And we've really done this well. So the bioengineers and their students are coming up and working hand-in-hand in the clinical setting with our students. The law school is coming up and teaching intellectual property law and helping us understand the way to do an appropriate patent search. The business school is coming up and saying, you need to design things that people want. So this is how you do a stakeholder analysis. This is how you do a market analysis. And these are really critical to shaping the device or the technology that you're going to produce. And, it's, and you mentioned Bench to Bedside, and that's the name of the program, correct? Bench to Bedside is one of our programs. One of the programs, okay. So Bench to Bedside was a program that was developed as a collaborative effort between the bioengineers and health sciences Bob Hitchcock uh, is one of the bioengineers who's a tremendous innovator at the university. He and I paired up because we both have a tremendous interest in this. And we had two students, a graduate student from his program and a medical student from our program. Now, our medical student, uh, Noah Minskoff, he's, he's since graduated several years ago. His mother died of lung cancer. 
She was a smoker. And he had a tremendous drive to try and prevent this from happening to other people. And he started working on the development of what now we see as e-cigarettes. He had several patents on this. And this was a way to deliver nicotine in a metered fashion that didn't lead to uh, carcinogens and cancer. Realized that people may have an addiction, but he didn't want to see people die the way his mother did. And he really became engaged in the whole concept of device development innovation And he helped drive the concept that we need to teach our medical students how to be involved in this because you can have such tremendous impact if you look at the past and how we've brought technologies to the field. With that, we put together the first program. We got funding from one of our local banks. So Zions Bank was very generous in understanding that this could help with commercial growth in the local markets. And then USTAR initially funded in on this. We were able to give away $70,000 in milestone prizes. So this is not money for your pockets. This is money that the students get reimbursed for later uh, for development of their technologies. We spend six months uh, teaching them all the components in brown bag style lunches, everything from ideation to, to need statement development to solution space, going into intellectual property, FDA, regulatory pieces, design controls, business plan development. And then they teach themselves, which has been the really amazing part. So these interdisciplinary teams teach each other their fields, and then they reach out to faculty and industry and gain more knowledge. And they're really so engaged that we found a way to educate our students in a field that I think exceeds the way we can educate them in the classroom because they're getting real-world experiential education. Now, after those six months, and during those six months, they get a $500 development fee, so a pretty small amount of money to prototype. And then they present at our competition where we bring in leaders from industry and leaders in academia to look at their business plan, their device, and rate it, and then we award the $70,000 in prizes to the teams that have really come up with something that we think has the capability to change healthcare. That's fantastic. And so what year did this start? This is, we're, we just started our fourth year now. Your fourth year. And what have been some of the winners over the years? What have been some of the devices that have come out of Bench to Bedside? So we have had winners in just about every field. In fact, if we take a look at last year, um, one of the winners was a new video game for children with autism to teach very young children activities of daily living, but make it engaging and fun. This team has done really well. They won one of our prizes and since then have had commercial interests who've given them more funds and we're working to pair them up with industry leaders in the gaming world who are looking at uh, digital medical therapeutics or the application of games and apps to healthcare. Uh, that that's a tremendous um, group. Another group came in and found a way to change the surgical laparoscopic trocar so that it's self-closing. Currently, when we close a laparoscopic port so that a patient doesn't get a hernia through it, it's a little bit of guesswork that takes place because patients are becoming um, a little larger over the years as the obesity epidemic has been such an issue. Surgeons put their finger deep into the canal and they feel to try and get into the right location and they think they close it. Mm -hmm. The ideal closure is a centimeter on each side. This device actually allows the trocar itself to serve as the guide and leads to a complete perfect closure each and every time. 
So we've got major leaders in the industry working with our TCO right now, potentially licensing that. And then one I think is really neat, uh, although it tends to make some people squirm, is one of the teams working with our plastic surgeons came up with the idea of a mechanical leech. Because we use leeches currently in medicine to take out venous congestion in flaps in order to salvage the flaps. That means a nurse has to go grab a leech, and they have to put it on a patient who doesn't tend to want to see it. The, the leech releases an anticoagulant and then draws back to pull the blood out. They've created a very simple, very inexpensive device that does the same thing, but now you don't have a biologic organism on you. It's got a way to actually meter the amount of anticoagulant going in instead of, well, I don't have any idea what the leech is producing. Uh, So this gives us a standardization in medicine, and it gives us the ability to actually monitor what fluid is going in and what fluid is coming out, and it's, it's a much, much better approach. This team actually was just invited to the National Collegiate Inventors Competition in Washington, D.C., which is a real honor, and they'll be representing the University of Utah Innovators uh, this year. That's fantastic, Dr. Langel. So how many med students do you think are participating in the program? Would you say half? Because I know it's growing popularity. There's a certain buzz. I mean, this program really makes our medical schools stand out among across the nation. So what, what, what's participation been like? Well, if we look at our first year, we had a total of 69 students and 13 teams. Those students really were comprised of about 33 medical students, and the remainder were from the College of Engineering. This year, as we just enter our fourth year, we are exceeding 280 students. We have about 110 medical students from the first and second years, and we, ha- we now have students from College of Engineering, business, architecture, nursing, physical therapy, the design school, the EAE team, or Entertainment Arts and Engineering, our gamers, and, and computer sciences. So we've grown massively, and we're at well over 60 teams at last check. That's, that's phenomenal. That's amazing. Like, I just know, like, something I love, and maybe you can talk more about this, as you mentioned, is the, the multidisciplinary approach, bringing different students together from different fields, different sciences, and they have that exchange of ideas. They collaborate, they cooperate. And I've also known some of our med students um, have actually taken a year off. You have to be good in good academic standing. And they've actually started pursuing a master's in engineering to kind of gain more experience. Uh, does that sound about right to you, Dr. Langel? Yeah, yeah. that's, that's yeah. correct. So Bench to Bedside was meant to be a beta test for another program, but it turned out to be probably our most successful program. The other program is called BioInnovate. So Dr. Hitchcock and I uh, developed a course in bioengineering that it was approved as a graduate school track. So you can get a master's degree in it though we actually have two students now pursuing a Ph.D., and that is a co-taught course by engineering and health sciences. We teach them the going-to-market business aspects clinical immersion piece for all the students, and the engineering group teaches design controls, FDA regulatory pieces, everything they need to actually understand what you make a device out of and how you make it appropriately and get it to market and how you test it. We've also brought in the law school, and the business school to teach them those critical aspects. And we have industry leaders come in and mentor them and speak to them about real-world applications. The teams are composed of about four to five students. We try and have a good mix of folks from medicine, engineering, the business school, and we're reaching out now to try and get the law school more involved from the student perspective. 
the teams have been hugely successful. We're just, we just entered our third year of that program, and we graduated three teams the first two years, and this year we'll be graduating about seven teams. These teams in the first two years were truly productive and have already resulted in over four companies starting up in, in, in LLC formations locally in the Valley that have reached out to both state and other grant um, funders and receive the revenue sources they need to grow their products. One of those is a company called Xenocore. So Xenocore is producing laparoscopes that can be used anywhere in the world. They no longer require the $500,000 investment per operating room. They don't require the $20,000 camera head and the $12,000 lens and the fiber optic lighting system. But now they can produce a disposable scope that basically can be produced for $20. It doesn't require a service contract. It doesn't require a capital purchase. And it's lightweight and can be taken anywhere from Ghana to Liberia to Morocco or anywhere in the United States. And so this technology has changed because instead of using triple CCDs and fiber optic lighting, we moved to basically what your iPhone or your Android phone does. It uses a really high quality CMOS sensor and camera lens. Uh, along with the LED lighting system. And that company is doing very, very well at this point. That's fantastic. Well, we're almost out of time, Dr. Langel. Let's talk about the future. What programs are on the horizon? I mean, we've talked about BioInnovate. We've talked about Bench to Bedside. Uh, what things are in store for uh, the University of Utah School of Medicine and this pheno- these phenomenal opportunities? Our biggest leap forward is digital medical therapeutics. We have the number one rated gamers in the country. So U.S. News and World Report came out this year rating the EAE program as number one in undergrad, number two in graduate school. They produce really high-quality, impactful video games. What we've seen is a brand-new field of medicine come out, and there's only limited studies on most of these at this point, but that's applying the power of gaming as a medical therapeutic, as a health maintenance, and as a clinical training device. A great example is a game that came out through the DOD called Snowland. Snowland was created through the technology of two psychologists out of University of Washington from a DOD grant. And the intent was that they could take severe chronic pain patients coming out of the war zone who've been experiencing uh, major burns and amputations and are having a very difficult time controlling chronic pain with narcotics, and using game theory to immerse them into a world that takes the pain away. They did a small randomized controlled trial comparing playing this three-dimensional virtual reality game to high-dose morphine for patients undergoing very extremely painful dressing changes for major wounds. And they found the game was actually more efficacious. So it doesn't have the side effects. It's cheap and fast to market. And it actually is something the patients can enjoy and engage in. So this transformation is starting to happen. The FDA is not quite sure how they're going to manage it, though their latest piece that came out in the end of September of this year was that unless it's a major diagnostic algorithm, they think they're going to leave it alone. That could be good or bad for the field because we don't want to see a lot of snake oil salesmen coming out with things that really don't work and dilute the field. But our EA group has decided that they really want to go into this field and start to understand how games work and how we can use the power of the mind to do this. So they've come up to join us. We are now producing video games that uh, offer patients uh, 
engagement and understanding of their healthcare needs. One of those is called the PE game or patient empowerment game that was designed for patients at the primary children's medical center undergoing high dose chemotherapy who weren't engaging in their physical therapy. So now they're engaged in a game that really takes them and gets them involved in their care because it's cancer based. But as they're playing this Wii based technology, they're moving their arms and legs in a way that were actually designed by a physical therapist to get them to do their physical therapy. That's, that's terrific. That's fascinating. Wow. Well, Dr. Lange, I guess the last question is, um, you know, I, often I get asked by medical students, like, how did you get your job? How do you get to where you're at? And, you know, you have a very fascinating story. What advice would you give to medical students, you know, who look at you and say, hey, I want to do surgery. I want to do medical innovation. Um, What advice would you give to them? So my advice is that it's good to come in with an idea of what you want to do. But if you don't have an idea, that's okay. And if you think you know for sure what you want to do, be open to changing it. And always look for that opportunity that really excites you and engages you so that you look at it and say, wow, that's really what I want to do with my life. I've had those opportunities. I didn't know they were coming. One of those examples was when I was a medical student, I had entered the standard MD track and I found a great mentor in research who got me engaged and then said, we have an opportunity for you to do a combined MD-PhD. And I said, I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter if I'm putting off the ability to generate revenue um, four years later. That's okay because this is something I'm passionate about. I really want to do this. And those things that you're really passionate about, they should be what's driving your life. Yeah, I, I agree. And just from my standpoint, you know, we just got we were just at a conference together. And one of the things I, I took away from the conference, we heard like people say, you, you never know what you're going to be doing in 10 years. Like if, if anyone asked me 10 years ago, would I be sitting here doing a podcast, talking to Dr. Langell, helping out in missions and all this stuff? I would say no way. But, you know, the opportunities arise. I agree with you completely. You have to follow your passions. And for me, it's uh, medical education, it's teaching, it's working with med students. And, you know, I I wish people can see your face, Dr. Langel, but when you start talking about your passion, your eyes lit up, and and just talking about all these different programs, bench to bedside, bioinnovation, you know, those are your passion. And I am just delighted that you were able to find a niche. You're able to find a place to kind of inspire that and help that grow. And so all the medical students, you know, how do you get to, you know, work with med students? How do you get to work with bioinnovation? I think it's following your passion and being open to those door- The opportunity will knock. And as you go forward in life, what I always tell students is people will ask you to help out. Like, oh, can you maybe help out with, like, being in charge of small group discussion? Or you're going to get, like, you know, emails talking about bench to bedside, bioinnovation. And to me, there's a, there's a fork in the road. There are those med students who say yes to the email. Oh, yeah, I want to learn more. I want to, you know, I have some ideas. I want to kind of join this competition. I want to learn more from, you know, these different multidisciplinary teams. And then there's med students who don't have time, you know. So I always tell med students, put yourself out there, be exposed to a lot of different areas, and don't be afraid to say yes to a lot of different things. So cool. Well, Dr. Langell, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to coming back uh, in a few months, maybe a year from now, and getting an update about how how's it going. All right. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.